0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. There have been a number of articles recently, mainly by major universities in our country, about the plummeting statistics around human happiness. And I've come across a bunch of those, and I've read a number of them. They've been really interesting. The one that I thought was the most interesting has been done by Harvard. It was especially interesting because it's the longest longitudinal study in American history. They started this study in 1938. And in 1938, they took two focus groups. They took one focus group of young people who were students at Harvard, and the other focus group were poor people in neighborhoods and Boston, many of them from juvenile delinquent backgrounds. So for 85 years, they've studied these people and these people had to open themselves to complete transparency. So throughout their life, they had interviews, they had blood draws, they had brain scans, (laughs) they were poked and prodded for the entirety of this study. And now the study has finally finished. So the two guys who were doing this for Harvard, Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz, have after 85 years come to conclusions. And here's their conclusion. Our conclusion is that social fitness, people in our study who had the warmest connections with other people stayed the healthiest and the happiest as they went through their lives. Now I'll quote Schultz, his conclusion. There were lots of behavioral indicators that show us that relationships matter in every way and we're just beginning to understand this mechanism. What's interesting about this study and studies like this is they often lean on human observation rather than divine proclamation. And so, frankly, they're usually very late to the game. Thousands of years prior in Proverbs, we read a number of Proverbs that make it rather clear that when we have relational disharmony, uh, we have great sadness. One of my favorites, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. It says, better to have stale bread in harmony... Then steak with someone you hate. <laughs> and we all know that, don't we? That when you have tension with another person, it eats away at you physically, emotionally. And the more important that person is to you, the more painful that tension is in your life. Now, here's the thing that Harvard and Georgetown and all the other studies badly missed. Though they did finally put their finger on the importance of relational harmony to all the other sorts of health They forgot the relationship that's foundational to even other relationships, the relationship that's underneath all health and happiness, and that is the relationship we have with our Creator. In today's passage, it's a beautiful passage, Exodus 25, 26, and 27, we read about God's desire to have relational harmony with people. So the title of today's sermon is, God Dwells With His People. And I want to make sure that we understand our problem at the foundational level is always a breach with our relationship with God, first and foremost. But there is good news for us. God dwells with his people. And if you're following along in the Pew Bible, we'll be in pages 77 through about 80 today. Looking at Exodus 25, 26, and 27. I want to remind you where we are in the book just briefly. Last Sunday, we were in Exodus 24, where there was a ceremony to sign or ratify the covenant that God had. And in the ceremony, remember Moses and a few others, and then about 70 elders climbed up to the mountain where God met with them and made covenant with them. And at different points, the, the amount of people that God spoke to narrowed more and more. Now, we're only two books into the Bible. Think about it this way. So far, every time in the Bible that God has had intimacy, it has been with a select person or a small group of persons. So we think of God, uh, we, we read that Enoch walked with God, that God had a close relationship with Noah, that God came to Abraham, that God then reappeared to Jacob. But we never read of God talking about having a relationship with a full group of people until Exodus 25. Look in verse 8. This is really the key verse. Let them make me a sanctuary that I, this is God speaking, that I may dwell in their midst. So now for the first time in the Bible, God is talking about having a relationship with a large swath of people. And from this passage, I think there are three principles. Uh, if you're a note taker, I'll give it to you. And we're going to return to them from several different angles of how this teaches us today. Here's the first principle, all right? Number one, God wants his people to want his presence. Okay, number one, God wants his people to want his presence. Let me show you that from the Bible. Look in Exodus 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, now verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. Now don't miss what is this contribution going towards. It's going towards making a sanctuary so that God can dwell in the midst of his people. But God is not force that on them. God wants them to want his presence. If God's presence will be in the sanctuary in their midst, it will only be because they wanted to give towards it. So God wants us to want his presence. So we could ask ourselves right away, do I want God in my life? Do I want his presence? Do I care for the Lord to be close to me, intimate with me? Do I want a real relationship with him? Well, the verses that follow demonstrate at this point in biblical history how they demonstrated that they truly wanted God's presence. Remember, verse 2 said, everyone who desires this from their heart will give a contribution. Now, beginning in verse 3, we see the contributions that they gave in verses 3 through 7. This is the contribution that you will receive from them, gold, silver, Bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ramskins. It goes on and on and on. All these things have something in common. They're costly. So for them to want God's presence means they're giving something costly. At this point, you could ask, wait, Josh, are you saying that we purchase God's presence? No, no. Remember, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord says of himself, if I were capable of being hungry, I would not ask you. (laughs) Further, we read from Paul in Acts 17 that the Lord who spoke cosmos into existence cannot be contained in a temple built by human hands. Solomon rightly prayed this at the inauguration of the temple. But let's hear it from the Lord's mouth himself. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house you could build to contain me? Where would the resting place be that could contain me? All right, so wait. If we're not purchasing God's presence, then what are they doing? Here's what they're doing. When you want the one from heaven to come down, you're willing to hold the things of earth loosely. When you esteem the one of heaven higher, you can hold your possessions here loosely. This is why they're able to give up in verses 3 through 7 things that are costly. They will only do so if, according to verse 2, their heart moves them to do so, as in the words of Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? When shall we have God in our midst? When we let go of what we thought we needed. Now that's the theme throughout the Bible. It's not just an Exodus 25 thing. When Jesus comes, he'll say this in Matthew 16. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. So you see what Jesus is saying? Anyone who will hold on to what they think is theirs will lose it anyway. Only the one who will lose it for my sake will find it. This is actually how faith has always worked. It has always meant letting go of everything you think you need in a willingness to trust God alone. Think of Noah, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, concerning events yet unseen, constructed the ark. So he let go of all sanity and social reputation to trust the Lord's word. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to a place that he did not know, went out not knowing where he was going, surrendering complete GPS control to the Lord. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In other words, in order for us to have a relationship with God, we have to de-God everything else. And the way we de-God everything else is by trusting that God is everything we need. In fact, let's take these Scriptures and fill in the other half. Jesus said, whoever will save his life will lose it, but remember the rest of it, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Or what he said in Mark 10, no one has left father or brother or sister or mother who has not received a hundredfold in this life and the one to come. So the scriptures repeatedly tell us we can trust God, we can loosen our tight grip when we have confidence that God is everything and will provide everything we need. That's why it says in Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham offered up Isaac. How? Because he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. Therefore, he could let go of everything else. I want to show you something further, though. In verses three through seven, here they are giving gold and silver and bronze and purple. Where did all that come from? From when God plundered the Egyptians. Can I remind you of something this morning? It is impossible to give to God. We only release back to God. It is impossible to contribute to God. We only trust him with what he has entrusted to us. This is a wonderfully freeing truth. And it really impacts the way you think of spiritual growth. John Piper helped me tremendously in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, with this small chapter titled, The Debtor's Ethic. Let me read it to you. The debtor's ethic has a deadly appeal to immature Christians. It comes packaged as a gratitude ethic, and it says things like this, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? He gave you his life, now what will you give to him? The Christian life then is pictured as an effort to pay back the debt we owe to God. The admission is made, we'll never fully pay it off, but the debtor's ethic demands that we work at it. Good deeds and religious acts are installment payments that we make on an unending debt we owe God. Yet in reality, now I'll quote him again, every good deed we do in dependence on God does just the opposite of paying him back. It puts us in even deeper borrowing from his grace. And that is exactly where God has us throughout all eternity. Good deeds do not pay back grace. They borrow more grace. So hear me this morning. The gold and silver that they will give back to God is simply grace released in faith, trusting for future grace. This is the only way we can relate to God. Now in Exodus 36, I'll jump ahead to tell you what happens. They actually give above and beyond the minimum. In Exodus 36, we read in verse 5, Moses said, The people have brought much more than enough for the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Verse 7 of Exodus 36 says, The material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Well, that is great news. But what happened between Exodus 36 and Exodus 25? How did they get to the point that they were able to give above and beyond What God had even asked, what happened between Exodus 25 and Exodus 36? The answer is they first gave their gold and silver to a golden calf. In Exodus 32, we read, Moses was up on the mountain and the people say, up, make us gods for us. As for this Moses, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron says in verse 3, take off the rings of gold and bring them to me. And he received the gold and with a graving tool made a golden calf and they said, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, the first place they put their gold was in idolatry. I want to make sure you understand how significant their idolatry was. Exodus 24, they make a covenant covenant with God, But in Exodus 25 through 31, God is just explaining how the tabernacle should be built. The tabernacle is built so that God, their covenant partner, can be with them. And they take the materials that are intended for God's house and they use it to make another spouse. It'd be equivalent to committing adultery during your honeymoon. That's how unfaithful they've been. And so in Exodus 32 verse 34, the Lord says, I will visit their sin upon them. When? When did he visit their sin upon them? This is a really important question. When will God visit his sin upon us? Romans 3 says something amazing. I always struggled over this phrase in verse 25. In his divine forbearance, he passed over Former sins. First time I read that, I thought, "What does that mean? That God just let it slide in the past? That in the past it was just okay to sin?" No, it it means that everyone before Christ was saved on credit. Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news for us all: Because my sins deserve to be visited on me, but here's where God visited them. We are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The day of visitation on their sin and our sin has happened on the cross for all who receive it through faith. But any who reject it will be visited on eternally. But there is an application for us. Remember, they first used their gold and silver on an idol rather than on the tabernacle. There's an application for us. Later, by God's grace, their hearts were opened, and they did bring the gold and silver in abundance to build the tabernacle. But I would remind us this morning, let's not waste God's resources on the world, the flesh, and the devil. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Brothers and sisters, God is so good that He can bring our hearts around. But in the meantime, let us not waste the resources that are His. So number one, God wants us to want His presence. But now number two, God wants to dwell with His people. Look now with me in verse 8. Number one was God wanted us. God still wants us to want his presence. Now, number two, God wants himself to dwell with his people. Look in God's word in verse 8 of Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. If you pause carefully on these two words, it is interesting and intriguing that they are set next to one another. The word sanctuary, the Hebrew word mikdash, means set apart. The word dwell, the Hebrew word shekan, from where we get shekanah glory, means settled among. Did you catch the paradox? One word means set apart. The other word means settled among. How can that be? How can God be totally set apart and yet settled among? And that paradox will be ironed out in part, by the tabernacle's elements. Anthony Salvaggio rightly understood this when he explained that God's desire in Leviticus 16 is to walk among his people. But there's a basic problem in that God fulfilling that promise and that promise's problem is us. There was a time God could dwell with humans because we were created without sin. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But God shared his plans for the tabernacle with Moses and gave detailed instructions so that we would understand how he can dwell among and yet be set apart. So that leads us to our third big point today. Number one was God wants us to want his presence. Number two is God wants to dwell with his people. But now number three, God can only dwell with us God's way. God can only dwell with us God's way. Look in verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Graham Goldsworthy writes, No detail in the construction of the tent and its contents is left to the imagination of the people. The people are completely dependent upon the revelation of God for knowledge of their relationship to Him. Let me make sure I make this point really clearly. There is not many ways to God. There is not my way to God or your way to God. There is only God's way to God. Very often I meet people who say, Josh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious Josh, I have an understanding with God, and I'm like, no, I think your understanding is that you are lost. There is only God's way to God. This is why Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through me. This is what we see here even in the tabernacle. The tabernacle will show us, according to Hebrews 8, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And therefore, it prepares us to realize there is only God's way to God. So now let's notice some of the details of the tabernacle. And I have to ask you to do this right up front. The details of the, of the tabernacle are the next two and a half chapters in the Bible, and I know we can't read all of those verses this morning. And so this morning, I want to give you at least a little bit of what each one of these elements in the tabernacle means. But please read the rest at home later to fill in some of the richness that we can only touch on this morning. So here, we're now kind of in the second part of the sermon. The first part, we had these three points. God wants us to want his presence. Second, God wants to dwell with his people. But third, we can only dwell with God, God's way. But now I want to show you how that actual construction of the tabernacle helps us realize what God's way is to have in a relationship with God. The first element of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. Pick up with me in Exodus 25, verse 17. Here's the first element that God gives for the tabernacle. It's The Ark of the Covenant. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. You may have a translation that says atonement cover. They're the same thing. A mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, one cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, but their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. There are at least three distinct elements here that we have to explain what they mean. The first are cherubim. Unlike other angels, cherubim are not messengers, but they are guardians keeping everything unholy away from God. One commentator calls them the palace guard for the king of kings, sacred guardians for the almighty. The last time we see them in the Bible, they're outside the Garden of Eden with flaming swords, making sure Adam and Eve don't try to come back. The next time we'll see them, they're in Ezekiel chapter 1. There we see that they're surrounding God because no one can come close. So notice the cherubim communicate to us that because of our sin, we cannot enter God's presence. Thankfully, that is not all that we read about, though, with the Ark of the Covenant. We also read that inside the Ark of the Covenant is what God speaks. And as we saw last Sunday, what God speaks is what Moses recorded. It's scripture. But it's not just any scripture. It's certain scripture. What is it that is going inside the Ark of the Covenant? The answer is the law. So inside this box is the law which shows us how sinful we are. On top of this box are two cherubim that show us we can't come close to it. Praise God, that's not all. That's on the ark. In between the law that shows us our sin and the cherubim that shows us we cannot come close is, praise God, the mercy seat. The mercy seat was only used once a year on the Day of Atonement and only by the high priest who sprinkled blood on it. And when you put all these elements together, it shows that the law that condemns and the cherubim who resist and guard can only be satisfied by the blood of a substitute who allows us to have access to God. Thus, the Ark of the Covenant teaches us to long for someone who can do two things. Someone who can fulfill the law perfectly, and someone who can suffer for lawbreakers satisfactorily. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, secondly, the table for bread. This is Exodus 23 through 30. For time's sake, let's only read verse 30. So, this is the second element of the tabernacle, verse 30. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. This one is interesting because the presence refers to the Lord's Presence and bread is put in front of him. Later on, Leviticus fills in, it's not just a random amount of bread, but it's always 12 loaves of bread representing the people of Israel who have made covenant with God. And the bread is always present it consistently has to be remade but if you've been with us through exodus maybe you're already guessing what the importance of this is remember when god rescued them out of the land of egypt he provided bread from heaven for them every morning and now here just like with the elements of the tabernacle they simply in faith return the grace that god has given to them trusting him to provide grace for them again and you know how he does it, actually, is that bread that they return in grace, he uses to feed the priest, and then the symbol continues over and over. All right, now third is the golden lampstand, just the very next verse, of so verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. That's striking enough, but it gets more striking. This lamp starts to take on a shape That is surely significant. Let's keep reading. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes. Now, notice this next phrase. Its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its side three branches out of one side and three branches out of the other. Why would a lamp have the shape of flowers and the shape of branches? The almond tree was known for its early budding, and it's not my speculation because that would be worth nothing. It is the word of the Lord that God says the almond tree symbolizes his watch care over his people. Jeremiah 1, verse 11 and 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what do you see? I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Thus the lampstand is the tree of light, the light of God's watch care to perform his word. It may also be hearkening back to the tree of life, which was the one in the Garden of Eden that they were not to partake of. So the lampstand reminds the people that God is watching over his word to perform it. It reminds us to long for light and life. Now the tabernacle itself, which is Basically, a tent is given descriptions in chapter 26. So, look with me in chapter 26. Let's just begin with verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen, and blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. Jump down to verse 31. I want you to see where the cherubim go In the tabernacle, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked in it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy." You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. We want you to notice that the cherubim are on top of the ark of the covenant, but they're also on the veil outside of the most holy place in which the ark of the covenant resides. Letting it be very, very clear that access to God cannot come on our own merit or character because we are not as holy as the Lord. Verses 15 through 30, we, we didn't read, but in those verses, it's interesting to me that in order to get into the tabernacle, and don't forget the tabernacle is a moving tent, so everywhere they move, they have to reset it and reset it, and yet every time they reset it up, the most holy place's veil was facing east every time. Because in Genesis 3, verse 24, after Adam and Eve sinned, they were sent east of Eden. Thus, the tabernacle's very directionality is to remind them how fellowship with God can be restored only through a blood covenant provided by a substitute. The cherubim remind us that There's a barrier between us and God, but the fact that that veil opens makes clear that God does want us to have relationship with him, and yet it must be through a perfect representative, someone sinless. Now, fifth, the last thing from the tabernacle I'll show you this morning is the bronze altar, and that's Exodus 27. Look with with me if you would. Exodus 27, verse 1, the fifth element of the tabernacle is the bronze altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. The bronze altar was placed out in the outer court, and it was used repeatedly to offer animal sacrifices. So if you came into the tabernacle, you couldn't even get past the outer court without seeing an animal who was dying so that you would not have to. You would consistently, graphically, and vividly see a substitute paying the penalty that is yours. Thus the tabernacle in its entirety shows our desperate need for an innocent substitute willing to incur our death. Let me draw a couple big observations from the tabernacle. Here's the first one. The tabernacle shows that God would live with his people and like his people, and yet would still be distinct from his people. Here's how it shows God would live with his people. We didn't read all this, but everything that was in the tabernacle was made to move, The bronze altar is hollow, so you can pick it up easily. The Ark of the Covenant has rings, so you can put poles through it. All the curtains break down. Why? Because wherever they go, God will go. He will not leave them or forsake them. There's nowhere that he's called them that he will not unpack, and his presence will remain. And yet, didn't you also notice with the tabernacle? Though it shows that God will live like his people, he'll live in a tent, so to speak, just like they'll live in a tent. It also shows he's different from his people because they all need lamps and they all need bread, but his are gold. And his tent is purple and scarlet, meaning his tent is royalty. Keeping this balanced is so important. God is always willing to be with, but he is never identical to us. I won't say the church's name because I'm not, I'm not like that, but there's a church on Glenwood that I came across recently, and I was looking into what they believe, and on their front page, they explain that everyone is perfectly good and that all of us can be God. This is a church about six minutes from here, and I saw the pictures of how full their auditorium is, and it breaks my heart to think that we have brought God so low that not only are we able to say, well, He's with us. No, we start to say He is us. No, He is never us, and we are never Him. His grace to be near never blurs the line between what makes God uniquely God. And even the tabernacle shows them this. The second observation from the tabernacle is it shows that though God longs to be with us, our sin is a barrier to access to Him. That's why there's cherubim. That's why there's veils. So we know that There's a sense in which as close as we want to get to God, there's something about our sinfulness that creates a barrier, a barrier that we have longing to be overcome. Job, I think God had this in verse 19, sorry, chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and I one day shall see him face to face. But third, I think the tabernacle shows that God is so gracious that he will draw near to us. And yet it anticipates a greater day when we can draw closer to him. If you know the Psalms well, you know that every time the psalmist writes something like, I wish I could be near God, I wish I could draw close to God, the venue through which they unpack that is the temple. Always, always they say, I want, when can I see God? When, do I, when can I enter his courts? When can I go to his Temple, when can I dwell with the congregation? because in the Old Testament that was the only way you thought of the presence of God being near, but it was an anticipation of God being nearer yet. This is a long quote, but one commentator, Dehan wrote this: "The only building." Ever constructed upon this earth, which was perfect from its very beginning and outside in every detail and never needed addition, attention, or alteration, was the tabernacle in the wilderness. The blueprint, the pattern, the plan, the design, all of its specifications were minutely made in heaven, committed to Moses for the children of Israel while he was on the mountain shortly after their deliverance from Egypt. Every single detail was designed by Almighty God. Every part had a prophetic, redemptive significance. There is no portion of Scripture richer in meaning, more perfect in its teaching of the plan of redemption than this divinely designed building. God himself was the architect in every detail, points to the character and work of his son, Jesus Christ. It is probably the most comprehensive, detailed revelation of Jesus, the Son of God, and the plan of salvation in the entire Old Testament. I think he's right. I think the tabernacle symbolically points two directions. Back to Eden, where fellowship was lost, but forward to the cross, where fellowship is restored. So let me take our three points that we had at the beginning. Here was number one. Remember, God wants us to want his presence. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and she gets into an intramural debate about the temple. The Samaritans believed the Pentateuch, but they rejected the rest of the Bible. So she argues, where should the temple be? On this mountain or on that mountain? What Jesus says is amazing. Believe me, the hour is come where neither this mountain in Jerusalem or that mountain is where you will worship the the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now listen to this last line. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God wants us to want His presence. The second one, God wants to dwell with his people. God first walked with his people in Eden, and then he lived in the midst of his people in the tabernacle as it moved. And then the glory left the temple because the people rejected God. But then in John 1, verse 14, we read, and the word, tabernacled is the Greek word, became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to earth To be with his people because God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that what removed us previously was paid for in full by Jesus on the cross. After Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was crucified, remember that thick curtain on which the cherubim were embroidered was rent in two from top to bottom. Access with God was opened. But now hear what God says about who you and I are today. First Corinthians three sixteen, do you, and the word is plural in Greek, it is not individual, do you plural church collectively not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Emmanuel, Baptist Church, should it not elate us that we are God's temple? That God's Spirit is dwelling in us? in a fulfillment of what this foreshadowed. But now let's return to that third and final point. We can only come to God God's way. James 4 tells us the manner in which we approach God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We come to the Lord only God's way, not our way. And the only way we come to the Lord is through the blood of the Lamb, through the ministry of the great high priest. God called the tabernacle the tent of meeting, but only through Jesus can God and man meet. Why do we come? Because we need to be washed. We need to be forgiven. We need to be cleansed. But more than that, we come because we want God. How do we come? There is no other way than humble faith, humility that realizes my unworthiness, but faith that rejoices that God has made a way. Beloved, let us want God's presence. Let us rejoice that God gives his presence but let us only come God's way. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for the richness of the tabernacle that displays to us so clearly the saving work of your Messiah, your Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that all of the things that we see from the separation of the veil to the blood of the offerings, to the blood of the Lamb, to the mediation of the one perfect great high priest who fulfills all of the law's demands and yet suffers as a lawbreaker. These are all fully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about to take communion, which similarly is intended to point us to remember what Jesus did for us when He died for us. Move our hearts, Lord, to realize that though our sins are many, as we sang, your mercy is more. Thank you that between the cherubim and the law is the mercy seat. And thank you that between two criminals was the perfect lamb of God on the cross. Lord, we thank you that our sins can be forgiven. Help someone today to come not their way, but come God's way. And help us as Christians to approach communion again, not on our own merit, but through your son, Jesus. In his name I pray. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraligh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.